say it with me in your heads this morning, right? That, that he says, I will, right, uh, fall upon, I will give you power. Sorry, I forgot for just a second. I will give you power uh, when the Holy Spirit falls upon you and you, what, will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Those are the very last words of Jesus before he ascends. And we've made a big deal over and over again of the word will. It's not, I hope you will. It, it is, you will. This is the promise of God. It is his plan. This is his power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit come on and you will be my witnesses in all the earth. After that, uh, a beautiful ascension comes uh, the wham of Peter's sermon, uh, or the wow of Pentecost, the wham of Peter's sermon, and, and then rapid growth begins in the church. We're told that you know, on Pentecost alone, 3,000 people were saved. We still yearn for that day in Sharon, don't we? 3,000 are saved. And then after miraculous healing, we see the church grow more, and then even in the midst of persecution and conflict, we see the grow, the church grow rapidly, even so to the point that Luke, who loves to pay attention to the details, right, so he counted the 3,000 when 3,000 came, then he counted the 5,000 when 5,000 came, that even in the midst of growth and conflict, the church is growing so rapidly that our detailed guy, Luke, just gives up and goes, the church is growing, right, and it's just going exponentially. And then, as we've repeated many times in these seven months, Luke records the story so that some recent Gentile converts, through Theophilus, who are struggling in their young faith, they might seize this day. They might seize even the hard days to be a part of the movement of God in all that he is doing. So that's the big picture of how we've gotten to the specific story that we are in the midst as we start today the story of Stephen. Stephen is an amazing, we have discovered, spirit-filled man who courageously stands for Jesus, who seizes the day in the life of the church, but is arrested. And after a very long sermon that we plowed our way through last week, uh, that ends with a very convicting statement against those who hold him prisoner, he is stoned to death. And at first glance, that appears to be a devastating story. And to be truthful, that story today gets worse. But what I want us also to see this morning is what? That things aren't always as they appear to be. Things aren't always as they appear to be. So to Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. You've got your Bibles open, your electronic devices tuned in. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. I'm letting you cheat this morning. It's on the screen as well. It says, and this is the very word of God, and Saul approved of his being Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day, the day of his execution, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. A devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. 
Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. May God help us in our understanding of this, his word. Remember the theme, the thought this morning is what? Things aren't always as they appear to be. Let's look first at the story of Saul in this story. We've, we've made numerous comments already about this man, Saul, who we know later becomes Paul, we, we know, uh, or we have, we have kind of guessed in the fact that Saul would have been in the synagogue in the day that Stephen stood and others stood and made a defense of the faith, uh, that he would have uh, been there when uh, Stephen stood to talk about Jesus as the new temple, the, the new tabernacle, the new presence of God, the presence of God that actually has come to earth, and, and Paul, Saul at that point would have vehemently disagreed. So we, we can see him in the struggle in the synagogue. We, we think he was there. We know he was there when Stephen stood and gave his sermon. And we know that Paul was there as the crowd began to execute him by stoning. We're told that Saul even held their coats as they did so, which meant that he took on authority. And we are then reminded again today in 8 chapter 1 that Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And then maybe the hardest thing to hear is that Saul is dragging Hellenistic Jews from their homes and arresting them. The word Luke uses is that he is ravaging, ravaging the church. The Greek word there in ravaging is that he is creating a stigma against, that he is causing them to be uh, defiled, that he is ruining the church, that he is ravaging the church. Saul is clearly in the middle of the chaos of this story. But why does Luke single him out? Is Saul the only one, the only authority at work here? Probably not. I'm sure others in the Sanhedrin are actively persecuting the church. But Saul is someone who, though he appears to be one who stands firmly against Jesus, we know what? That things aren't always what they appear to be. We won't get to the rest of the story in the book of Acts, but we are familiar with the story. I've mentioned it a couple of times of Acts 9 when Saul, on his way to Damascus, some hundred miles away from Jerusalem, to further persecute the church, uh, is uh, lit up by light that comes from heaven, right? And Jesus literally speaks to Saul, why are you persecuting me? And all of a sudden, Saul's heart and his life and his mind, everything begins to change, and he's on to Damascus, now a blind man, where he meets Ananias, whom Paul Saul would have been going to persecute, right? Uh, meets Ananias and prays over him, and like scales, uh, these things fall from Saul's eyes, and he begins to see, and he is renamed Paul. His life is changed. As many of you know, as we follow Saul now, whose name is changed to Paul, he becomes a faithful missionary to the cause of the church, risking everything, including his life, for the cause of Christ, and continues to be an influence through his amazing, spirit-filled writing of the scriptures. We've made the point before, but we're 
making it again, that God is taking the chaos of man's unbelief, and Paul even said, I am the worst of sinners, and uses him literally to change the world. Things aren't always what they appear to be, and God is regularly taking what appears to be chaos and revealing his perfect plan. We see that in the story of Saul, but even more in this text, I believe we see it in the story of the church. Here is an incredible perspective to our point this morning. We are told in 8 verse 1 that on the day of Stephen's death, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. That the chaos was so great that these new believers, right? So Pentecost has only probably been a year away. So these 3,000, these 5,000, these new believers uh, in the midst of this chaos are, are fearing for their lives. They're leaving their homes. They're fleeing as exiles to neighboring regions called Judea and Samaria. Listen, it's a picture not unlike the ones that uh, we still see in, in modern day times, like in Nigeria when uh, Christian villages are uh, marauded by uh, uh, folks that are against them and their faith, and they literally have to flee their villages, their homes, and, and then live in uh, shanties, just put together uh, huts uh, as they had to leave their land in order to save their lives. Men like Saul are walking into homes and dragging people to prison where they're likely to face death. The church is being ravaged. It is a devastation that we as Americans cannot even begin to imagine in our worst dreams. And it erupts amidst some of the most unparalleled growth in the church. The miraculous formation of the church in Jerusalem is either now going to face death or exile. That's the chaos that ensues as we jump into Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. But then comes verse 4. And I want you to understand, the greater that we understand the devastation of the persecution will be the more that we appreciate verse 4, right? So if we think about that devastation, we go, ah, oh, that's too bad that they were like being thrown out of their house. And we can't be like even begin to focus on that, imagine that. Uh, then, then verse 4 will be like, yeah, that's all right. But if we begin to understand the depth of the reality of, of this persecution, of the risk to their lives, then verse 4 becomes all the more beautiful. Listen to verse 4. Now, those who were scattered went about hiding their families, making sure that everything was okay, and, and just kind of held on for dear life. Is that what your verse 4 says? Now listen to this. Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. You seem less than amazed. You get the big picture, right? New believers who were thrust from their homes, exiled from their city, were concentrating on preaching the word. Like, like Stephen just got stoned to death for that, right? Like the reality is, is we're, we're being dragged into our houses for that. Common sense. So we should probably shut up about that. And here they are. 
filled with the Spirit of God, walking away from their homes to lands they don't know. And they are, ready for this? You and Gallagher's of them. That's a great. Isn't that a fun word? You and Gallagher's What word comes from you and Gallagher's Come on. Evangelize, right? But they are proclaiming the gospel. They're evangelizing. Not you, but the American church who has all the freedom in the world, who's not being dragged from their homes, including me, can't get off our pews to tell anybody about Jesus. And these are people that are being killed for the sake of Christ, and they leave scattered preaching the word. I'm amazed at the faithfulness of the church that those who are being threatened with their lives are talking about Jesus, and they continue to do so. But listen, their faithfulness points me even more to an awesome God. And this is what I want us to see. Their faithfulness is in line with God's plan. Think with me here. Acts 1.8 says that God would make the church witnesses to Jerusalem, and then to where? To Judea and Samaria. Drop my comment, friend. Persecution scatters the church to where? Judea and Samaria. Can I suggest to you that things aren't always as they appear to be? What is devastating for the people of God is the plan of God to spread the gospel. I am struck by God's plan. And listen quickly, it is a structure that we see throughout the book of Acts. I want you to show, uh, I want to show you this next uh, uh, slide. I'm not sure how well you can see it, but here's the entire book of Acts, right? So God, by His Holy Spirit, shows up in Jerusalem, there's Pentecost, there's church growth, there's persecution, and then there is death. Listen, if we're rational people, we're going, okay, so that's probably the end of that movement, right? Like, people are dying for the sake of this. They throw up in a fetal position, protect themselves, and forget about it. But that's not what happens in the book of Acts. In fact, the death of Stephen causes the gospel to scatter to Judea and Samaria, where the gospel spreads, the church grows, and there's persecution and death. In Acts chapter 12, you'll read about the death of James by Herod, because this Christian movement is becoming too strong. So you think, ah, two times. Maybe now the fetal position, they're just going to shut up and keep to themselves, right? Is that what they're going to do? No, listen, in chapter 13 of Acts, Paul and Barnabas are sanctioned, commissioned to take the gospel to the known world, to the ends of the earth, where the gospel spreads, the church grows, and there's persecution. Paul is arrested. We don't read about it in Acts, but we know it to be true. He's beheaded for his faith. Does it stop there? No, listen. You're sitting here because through this process of growth, persecution, and death is the reality of how you have received spiritual life. It's quite frankly the theme of the Bible that out of death comes 
life. You see, things aren't always as they appear to be. The chaos of the persecution of the church is the very means that God uses to grow the church. Now quickly, does this mean we should go out today and look for persecution? Step outside the door. Persecute me because I want to see the gospel grow. The answer to that is no. We shouldn't do that. But if we indeed stand for the gospel, we will suffer. Be not surprised when the world comes against you in that. But also recognize that things aren't always what they appear to be, that even in that suffering, God is working out his plan. I specifically look at Philip in Samaria in this text. He is the number two in the list of those assigned to care for the widows in chapter 6. And with the death of Stephen, it appears that Luke is finding focus on, quite frankly, the next guy up, right? From the death of a very close friend in Stephen, Philip does not get in that fetal position and protect himself, but rather Philip goes. He scatters to a really unique place, Samaria. Samaria. We learn about Samaria a bit in two places in the ministry of Jesus. One, when he meets the Samaritan woman at the well, and when he tells the surprising story of a Samaritan who helps a Jewish man who has been beaten and left for dead in the parable of the Good Samaritan. What we learn is that the people of Samaria are not well respected. They're not respected well by the Jewish people or even the greater culture of the day. It's kind of a city, a state of outcasts. It is well known that they are predominantly an ethnically, an ethnically mixed people of both Jewish descent and Gentile descent, and not particularly liked by either descent. They've heard of Jesus. They would have certainly heard of the amazing things happening in Jerusalem in the birth of the early church, but they have no idea that any of that might come to them because they've always been left out of everything. That is until Philip comes to town and begins to not only proclaim Christ, but also perform miracles among them. And here's a beautiful summary. There was much joy in that city. You know, when the Samaritan Council got together and thought of their logo and tagline for uh, tourism in Samaria, joy was not a part of that phrase. It's like, you can't find any place worse, you may as well come to Samaria. That, that probably was their, their tagline, right? Listen, joy has not been a part of these people's lives, and I think it's why Luke here is so intentional about saying this summary statement. There is now joy in Samaria. The people of God, how did joy get to Samaria? Only through devastation in Jerusalem. You see, things aren't always what they appear to be. It's the story of Saul. It's the story of the church. It's a magnificent window. But maybe we should spend the rest of our time this morning talking about your story. Our story. I know this is scary to tell you because you're going to like zone out when I tell you how fast we're going to cover three different landing points and two principles. But here we go. First landing point is this. The things of the world. 
You see, the things of the world aren't always as they appear to be. <laughs> this election, no matter what your political preference is, right, has been, I would say, a bit chaotic. Anyone want to disagree with that? In clarification, I, I don't consider the apparent election of uh, President-elect Joe Biden chaotic. Right? That, that's not what I'm referring to. I know some of you are, are, are hearing the sermon and you're going, Oh, I know what he's going to preach. Trump's still going to win. It's not always as it appears to be. <laughs> not happening. Not in this mouth or in this pulpit. Right? Well, what I will say to you is that the process has been chaotic. And this whole coronavirus thing, I don't know about you, it's been a little chaotic. The, the, the reality, the tensions in our country, the animosity of people who sit in the same churches has been a bit chaotic. Here's what I've been saying out of Acts 8, 1 through 8. That in the chaos that we live, God desires the church to rise above the chaos and to seize the day to speak of the peace of God the kingship of God, the sovereignty and rule of God over chaos where God likes to do great things. But unfortunately, sometimes the church has been more sucked into the chaos, has been an aim for the chaos, rather than to stand above it and speak truth into it. I was reading this week an article out of the Colson Center, some of you familiar with uh, Chuck Colson, it's called breakingpoint.org, and there's a blogger there that reminded me of uh, C.S. Lewis' book, The Screwtape Letters. I think I've mentioned it before. How many of you are familiar with Screwtape Letters? A couple of you know. C.S. Lewis wrote this book, and, and it's basically a, a story of a head demon, right, in hell, giving uh, mentoring to a lower minion of how to ruin Christian journeys, right? And so it's all this advice of how they can actually ruin the movements of Christ. And in the screw tape letters, C.S. Lewis says the way to do that. So this head demon says to the minion, you know, if, if Christians got more involved in policies, movements, and causes, and crusades, more than prayers, sacraments, and charity, we could disrupt the movement of Christ. You say that again? If we could get them more involved in policies, movements, causes, and crusades than prayers, sacraments, and charity, we can disrupt the movement of Christ. Listen, people of God, we cannot in this day become more involved in the chaos than focus on the one who stands over the chaos with purpose. We cannot seize the day for our political party, no matter what it is, more than we seize this day for our Lord. People of God, Covenant Church, may we stand above the chaos to continue to preach the word, to evangelism, to seize the day of chaos, to proclaim a Lord who desires to use the chaos to further his kingdom, much like the early church did, much like Philip did, to stand in confidence that things aren't always as they appear to be. Things of the world. Second, things of the church. 
Let's think of the church for just a second. Over time, especially in the U.S. and more developed countries, the, the church has become, this is a sweeping generalization, but I think it's true, has become a gathering place that consumers come to to be encouraged, taught, and cared for. Dan referenced it even in our call to worship this morning. We come to get. The church has become the end rather than the means to an end of the gospel being proclaimed. In our text today, if this would happen in our culture, I would say that outside of the movement of God's spirit, that there's a good chance that the church would turn in on itself and try to be a place of safety, a gathering place, listen, rather than a scattering place. May we take a lesson in time. When life is much less threatening than what they experience. And, and turn from what we think church should look like as a gathering place and be a scattering place. I, I don't know, maybe go love on a neighborhood this afternoon as God has made it 73 degrees and give us people to love. Maybe in your own individual lives, someone that you know who is not a believer in Christ, that you just begin to pray for and intentionally love more of the gospel. This gathering on Sunday morning is not the end. It is a means to an end. This is not just a gathering to be a gathering. It's a gathering that we might be a scattering. Church. Third, things of the world, things of the church. We're going fast. I told you, things of the life. Quite possible that your life, even outside of the things that we've mentioned, feels a bit chaotic. It might be your workplace or a lack thereof. It might be your finances or the lack thereof. It might be a marriage or the lack thereof. I don't know. I don't know what your chaos is, but can you hear that God sees even these places in your life and that he has a plan to speak his purpose even out of your chaos, that things aren't always as they appear to be. So what do we do personally as a church and as a church to the world in the midst of chaos? Well, I think we first cry out to God. <laughs> the church in Acts 8 didn't come to that place on their own. They sought God and God was faithful to empower them to see beyond what they could see. And so they shared the gospel even in their exile. And in our own lives, we must learn to seize the day to discover what God is doing even in our chaos, to believe that things aren't always what they appear to be and God is involved. What do we do in chaos? We cry out to God. What do we do in chaos or uncertainty? We believe two principles, right? And this is where I close quickly. Uh, actually, these two principles were stolen from Matt Chandler. I give credit where credit is due. But in covering these verses, he said this. First, we need to recognize that God is in charge of the chaos. God is in charge of the chaos. Things aren't always what they appear to be. We need to trust God in 
the chaos. Second, I love this, no one, listen, no one can stop the mission of God. God is not left wringing his hands in any circumstance. Not of the United States, not of Nigeria, not of Iran, not of Uzbekistan or Kazakhstan. God is not left wringing his hands going, man, what am I going to do now? Though, in, in fact, God is looking upon even the very hard places and he's saying out of his authority, this is my purpose, this is my plan. Until my son returns for his church, this is how the gospel will spread. And so as you look closer at those nations that have great persecution, you will see a church that is growing and thriving out of that persecution. May it be in our lives as well that we see things differently. Not consumed by our world, by our struggles, by our troubles, but consumed by the power of God in them that we might see and trust that things might be different than they appear to be. Think about what we've sung this morning. That even though we realize the deep nature of our sin, that through Jesus it is what? Well, with our soul. That our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That when darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. We've sung, a mighty fortress is our God, a sacred refuge is your name, your kingdom is unshakable, and with you we will reign forever. And so now we sing, our God is greater. Our God is stronger. God, you are higher than any other. Our God is healer, awesome in power. Our God. Our God. What do we do in chaos? We believe that. And we proclaim it to the world. Let's pray. God, our minds are sometimes subject to wandering thoughts. God, I would pray against that even in these seconds that we pray together as a church. That our focus, as we have also sung, our focus, our eyes might be on you. This world, this country, our lives Feel at times chaotic, oh God. Out of control. Scary. So we cry out to you. We cry out and ask, oh God, that your presence, your power would be at work in our lives. You would give us eyes to see not only Jesus, but eyes to see that which you are doing. Give us the power that though things are a bit chaotic, that it might be the very place that we seize this day to proclaim you. That Sharon, Hermitage, Sharpsville, West Middlesex, Brookfield, 
allow the mind to know you, see you, run to you, trust in you. The coming church might exist to bring hope, not by who we are, but God by pointing others to you. God may that be in our lives, in our church, in our world, for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.